Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. to the Elysium Project. I'm Hercules Invictus, and today I'll be hosting, co-hosting, engineering, producing many hats uh, today. I'm very proud to announce that the AWA report will be followed by Common Bonds, a new segment hosted by Dan Uloa, uh, and his guest is Lewis Kimmel from New Labor, and then, of course, there'll be our Career Center update with me. Um, without further ado, Dan Uloa. Greetings, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Greetings, Hercules. I'm glad to see that uh, um, the talks continue and uh, that uh, you're having another uh, uh, talk at a library in May. And I heard uh, today from several places that uh, you've been contacting other libraries as well. So uh, I'm glad the information's getting out there. Yeah, you know, we've been uh, really busy, you know, after uh, I spoke in uh, Crestfield about the nature of the gig economy, you know, we're eager uh, to continue doing that. So May 16th at the Clifton Public Library, 7th to 8.30, you know, we'll be doing a similar pro- uh, presentation about uh, understanding the nature of the gig economy. And we're also looking uh, to organize a similar event in uh, Newark, for example, reaching out to the uh, Hispanic uh, community there. Uh, Fantastic. affected by this thing. So, you know, we're, we've been busy that way. Uh, that is uh, phenomenally great. And uh, you have uh, guys in the AWA, I was thinking today, uh, that know how to do uh, some editing with audio and video footage. Yeah, we do have a friend of a friend who's working on uh, sprucing up the video we took at the event. So we're hoping to get that uh, by the end of the week. That is fantastic, and if you put me in contact with that person, we could start converting all our shows together uh, into uh, a video to put on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, an interesting idea. I'll have to uh, reach out to him. Okay, awesome. So what else is new and exciting in the world of the AWA? So, yeah, we're working, and uh, we're busy 
uh, organizing those uh, talks. You know, we're also looking into really organizing graphic designers. Now, this is a pretty exploited category of workers. You have a lot of them looking for traditional nine-to-five positions, but they're not really able to find that. So a lot of the work they do is in the gig economy, 1099 work, and it was really difficult if you have somebody who's like at their nature, an artist, and doesn't really understand or hasn't been taught, you know, the nature of being an entrepreneur, for example, right. and the many pitfalls that one can find in this age of uh, hypercapitalism, for example. So we're uh, looking at that. You know, we have uh, one of our uh, newest members, uh, Alex Garcia, is uh, taking the lead in organizing workers and organizing around uh, his alma mater, New Jersey City University in uh, Jersey City. So I'm mm-hmm. looking to reach out to graphic designers there. His old professor has been a great help. So we're looking to help them, for example, put them in touch with resources, have them understand their rights. Uh, for example, now that tax season is over, I suppose that hurdle is gone. But, you know, it's always good you know, to have uh, information for the future in terms of what you can and cannot write off uh, right. can save you a lot of money on uh, taxes when a large bill uh, comes due at the end of the year unexpectedly. So we're busy in that respect, and, you know, we're looking forward to reaching out to these people. It's really important that they understand what's out there. There are opportunities, of course, for people to make money. There is always the ideal yeah. of the free agent at the top versus the struggling creative a little lower down. And then you have, for example, the Uber drivers who are a little lower. That's getting a lot of attention now, actually. We've been following that uh, quite uh, closely. That, you know, we have Uber, this company is making billions of dollars. For example, mm-hmm. they had a lot of uh, former Obama administration officials helping them. You know, in terms of their lobbying, dealing with the various nuances of government uh, to their advantage. So they have a lot of drivers, and the drivers really aren't making a lot of great money. Uh, they're making some money, but, you know, they're not really getting compensated for their gas. They're not getting compensated for insurance. You know, they don't have health benefits. And Uber has been pretty adamant that they're not actually employees. They're just people who randomly find jobs for, on their app which is kind of funny, you know, especially since they now have these nice stickers to identify the Uber drivers. So a lot of this is coming to a head as Uber is going for their initial public offering, their IPO, where the owners of the company stand to make billions of dollars while their workers uh, will not. So this has enraged many of them. So workers are organizing, especially in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Chicago, to strike on May 8th, uh, the day of the IPO. Right on the so corner. Be really, yes, yes, this will be really interesting to watch. You know, it's an interesting group, uh, groups that are organizing these strikes, you know, similar to us where they very much are pro-labor, but they are not traditional labor unions, for example, using new methods of uh, to organize people because it's not like back in the day in 1937 when, the auto workers, for example, were able to organize everybody who worked at the plant in Flint, Michigan, get them to cooperate together, you know. Um, you know, people don't really operate that way. The Uber drivers are going everywhere around 
around the city, you know, they don't have, they're not working at the large plant together, for example. So a lot of social media has been used, and when they do congregate at airports and whatnot, it's interesting, uh, for example, to organize in that fashion. So we're eager to see uh, the results of that. I'm eager to see the results of uh, that as well. The world is uh, changing, uh, and uh, rather than uh, being victimized, people are starting to take uh, action. So uh, uh, that's always a much better uh, place to be standing than uh, you know being victimized continuously. Um, I was very saddened, and in fact, I was so saddened by this that I that I called you <laughs> to uh, basically uh, verbalize my uh, concern. Uh, I had heard that uh, Walmart was laying off uh, greeters. And uh, to the best of my understanding, uh, the greeters are people who um, had uh, uh, disabilities. And so um, every greeter I've ever encountered while going to a Walmart has always been very pleasant and helpful. Uh, and these were positions uh, for uh, you know people who traditional employment uh, had left uh, out. And uh, I thought Walmart would be uh, greatly uh, uh, should be greatly applauded for doing this. Now they're wiping out those positions. So I don't have all the details yet, but it's something I'm looking into. Uh, but I find that very dismaying uh, when uh, um, major companies start targeting uh, the, the less able. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's uh, disheartening, but it's not surprising at all. Walmart uh-huh. uh, is wholly uh, indifferent and uh, cold cold-hearted towards its employees. Uh, they've beaten back efforts to organize them and unionize them uh, year after year. So they have made some concessions, like in the face of like massive public protests, for example. But this is after years of organizing, for example, and still not that great to work at a Walmart. And it's still like not that like crazy that, oh, yeah, we'll just lay off these people. So... It's hard that way, especially when you do have somebody like that, for example, who is disabled, who can't be, for example, educated about the nuances of, like, serve the profession and, like, get back out there and make a decent living. You know, it's really hard. And we have a lot of people like that. Yeah, and, uh, again, we're living in a society that up until fairly recently uh, prided itself, although it it did miss the mark uh, quite often, uh, in uh, being a caring society and having a safety net. And uh, um, again, that wasn't the total reality. A lot of it was the rhetoric that we had. uh, But now even the rhetoric is not being repeated. And uh, it seems that uh, uh, there's not even a pretense of, uh, you know, attempting to help people and uh, um, have a society that's for the people and by the people and so forth. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's actually a book called The Unwinding about that okay. uh, from uh, by a man named George Packer, who uh, wrote for The New Yorker about the, how the nature of the social contract has deteriorated from the 1970s to about now. Uh, it's a few years. It's uh came out around uh, 2013, but I think it's really uh, still relevant and it's interesting as it follows, like a number of characters. For example, a man who ended up being a uh, Senate chief of staff in the 2010s as he was trying to pass bank reform, but moderate senator, Democratic senators were in the way, for example. And 
the book tra- traced his uh, career, for example, as he had made his way through D.C. And there was also a, a single mother and how she uh, had been able to, like, support her kids working as an auto worker but was finally laid off around 2008 and became a community organizer in the city of Youngstown, Ohio, which has been especially distressed. Uh, so it's really interesting. And then there's also just a couple chapters in the book about, for example, how Newt Gingrich uh, really saw making politics more polarized as the way to rise and right. Republican ranks and to enact his agenda and how horrible that was. And then like the veneration of a celebrity like Jay-Z, um, and while he's not a bad guy, you know, this isn't exactly a great role model either. You know, somebody so money-focused you know, versus, you know, role models of the past, like Dr. King and whatnot. So it's interesting in that respect. And actually thinking of Youngstown, you know, we've had the, the Lordstown auto plant outside Youngstown was in the news uh, recently that this mm-hmm. plant that had been a center organized by the United Auto Workers for decades is now uh, has now been closed down by General Motors. Uh, at the same time, the General Motors is making a good amount of money. At the same time, the CEO is making a good amount of money. When Trump said he was going to protect industries like this and deal with foreign competition, uh, but none of that uh, is true, and none of that holds because, you know, the nature of the economy now. And it's really a shame because, you know, you have a traditional labor union like the United Walk Workers, auto workers, and their base is mm-hmm. workers in the plant. It's very difficult subsequently when the plant goes away to maintain that one way or right. another. For example, when people lose their jobs, you know, they become cynical, they become disillusioned. And they move away. So an area like that is really economically distressed. And you know, I was outside 20, uh, Youngstown in 2016 organizing uh, or managing campaigns. So, you know, I knew some of those people out there. So quite disheartening there on a personal level as well. I, I can imagine. I, I, I lived in rural Pennsylvania in uh, Wayne and Pike uh, counties, which is like 1% of the uh, population uh, in uh, Pennsylvania is co- congregated in those two uh, counties. Uh, and uh, um, I remember that I was uh, teaching uh, college and I was working for a job center and uh, um, yeah, I, I, was, I had a, uh, a small business and everything was doing okay. Um, and until the time that it, it wasn't. And uh, the way things were set up in uh, that part of the world uh, was that all the money for programs was funneled through the state. So the state froze uh, all programming, educational and uh, social programming. So all of a sudden there was nothing. <laughs> you couldn't go work someplace else or you know, for uh, an organization uh, that might have been uh, or an institution that was funded differently. Everything was funded you know, similarly. So all of a sudden you find yourself out of work and you're in competition with every single other person who was doing what you, what you did in the state. Uh, so that required a lot of uh, uh, creativity. And uh, I remember uh, uh, we put a lot of time and energy into our business, you know, uh, and uh, then uh, because of that, I wasn't eligible for unemployment. 
So, you know, um, it, it, was, it was a very, very uh, difficult uh, time. And uh, I found, you know, I'm a very positive person. So I didn't succumb to cynicism because I knew that that wouldn't help me uh, in the slightest. Um, so I, I remain positive and I explore possibilities and, and options. But I saw all around me uh, how uh, people uh, were becoming uh, more cynical and more depressed and less uh, uh, hopeful. And that had a very great impact on the, the lives of the people around them, more so than the uh, loss of uh, revenue. Oh, yeah, that's uh, it's become a really uh, well documented now about like the psychological and uh, health aspects of job loss and economic insecurity that people lose their confidence, that they become very anxious, that they become very depressed, for example. And, you know, with the rise of economic precarity, you know, we've also seen a rise in, you know, other things that aren't so good to see. For example, suicide, that people yes. just take it to that extreme, you know, alcoholism, for example, the opiate addiction epidemic, for example. This is the one place people turn, you know, when the world is pretty dark, might as well, it seems. But that's quite unfortunate uh, and should not be condoned. Yes, and in this country, too, uh, we define ourselves uh, to a very great degree uh, in terms of what we do. And uh, I remember when I was a kid going to Greece, uh, you know, all the time. In Greece, people didn't, for the most part, uh, define themselves by their professions. They defined themselves with other things, and their profession was just uh, the way they had of, you know, basically earning money. Uh, and uh, their workday uh, was structured differently. They worked from early in the morning till around noontime. Then they had a siesta for a few hours, and then they returned and worked uh, till the... Uh, um, evening, uh, and then you know they had uh, all these uh, rituals for spending their time. They used to walk around, and uh, uh, it was kind of like an organized uh, thing. So it was a very different way of structuring reality, and a very different emphasis on uh, uh, employment and uh, the importance of employment and the role of employment in their in their daily lives. But here you are with no, YouTube. And uh, yeah, I, something I, that we perhaps should. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that I think it's something that we should explore, and does sound like a great idea. For example, when you know, your profession isn't the end all and be all, for example, of your life, there are other things that define it. And especially if you're just if you can make a good living, you know, there's plenty of other hobbies and living, you know, raise a family. For example, it's another thing that's really been, it's really difficult uh, under present circumstances. Oh, indeed. And uh, uh, very disheartening. I went to a uh, Democratic meeting uh, today, and uh, some of the uh, information that was being shared there was, uh, again, very disheartening uh, and just uh, kind of uh, uh, lit an even greater fire beneath my seat that, you know, what do we do about this? We can't, we cannot allow. Uh, these things <laughs> to continue happening or or to happen on a higher level than they're currently happening. So um, I, I was uh, very heartened to see very many people felt that way. And, you know, they were uh, trying to explore ways in which uh, these uh, uh, current trends could be uh, met and uh, overturned. Uh, 
Uh, of special uh, concern was uh, um, we had somebody come in and give a uh, report on uh, the uh, the time we were given by environmentalists. Uh, the environmentalists say we have around 12 years before we reach a point, uh, our scientists, that of no return. And uh, tonight, the person who worked in the, the energy industry uh, was saying that we do not have 12 years, that you know, we, we have actually a lot less time. So it's like, what do you do <laughs> in less time? There's so many things that need to be addressed. How do you address this? And uh, um, I, I think that if we were more focused on vocation and people finding their, their gifts and uh, cultivating them and developing them for the good of the society around us and then applying them, we wouldn't be in the type of uh, situations we find ourselves in now. Yeah, it's a really good point. One on two levels about the environment that it is like a shame to say 12 years or less that we have to do about this when you know you have, you know, the great issues we have here in the United States right. in terms of dealing with that on the federal level, the progress we were sort of making under Obama, progress we are not making under Trump. And then let's say like in China, you know, they say they pollute a lot as well. So. You know, it's really difficult, and that's hard. And it's hard, you know, because you know we've seen Hurricane Sandy here in New Jersey. We've seen Maria in uh, Puerto Rico. We've seen Katrina in New Orleans. You think, oh wait, we should wake up and like really deal with this, but no. Unfortunately, right. it seems like we're only destined for more of these like superstorms that are going to really devastate communities. And yeah, you know, it's difficult, especially here in New Jersey, when you know we know that this is a big problem. You know, Governor Murphy's been trying to do a few things uh, mm-hmm. and reverse some of Christie's anti-environmental policies. But so much of it is still just like on the federal level, for example, that needs to be done in terms of like redirecting, you know, the investment in terms of green energy. And uh-huh. it's really an interesting issue that way because, you know, I have uh, my good friend Ed, who I've mentioned on this uh, podcast before, you know, he's... Uh, uh, union worker, and he talks a lot about the nature of how energy and fossil fuels, you know, perpetuated capitalism and started capitalism. And, you know, when we started digging for coal, for trains, and for the use of energy, you know, when oil became uh, really popular to use to light uh, and fuel a number of things, and how that really fueled its growth. And now to say, like, what's going to happen in terms of how the economic system seems so tied to these fossil fuels, what would happen, for example, can capitalism reinvent itself to be completely green or right. is it going to resist so much? And then what does that mean? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. What, what does that mean? Like, I like the Green New Deal, um, but then again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an environmentalist. Uh, um, you know, I do know something about workforce development, uh, and uh, I do have uh, concerns uh, about uh, the direction where we're headed and whether we'll have enough time to switch uh, directions. Uh, but I, again, I, I could only make the best decision I could base I could make based on who I am and what I happen to know, and to leave my mind open to information that would. Yeah, even contradict what I'm currently believing, so that I could, you know, I could make a right decision and channel my time and energy uh, toward the best uh, um, ends. Uh, 
Um, but as you point out, what would that do to our society? You know, and are there studies about that? How would that impact us on that level? Because it's very, it is very important. Well, that's the catch then to say getting us all fossil fuels would be such a great impact and we it would really hurt, you know, our, our style of living, our lifestyle, our comfort level. But by the same token, the planet is dying. People are dying because of these storms, because of heat waves, because of, you know, increased uh, winter and snow. You know, we, uh, on the other end, because this climate change, that the equilibrium of the planet's temperature has been thrown off, so it does swing one way or the other, for example. Uh, it's oh, really it does. important to understand. I remember so when I was in Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of people, and again, everyone was hurting because of the economy. A lot of people sold the land rights to their property, you know, because it would be underneath their property, so they didn't think it would affect them. And uh, it, the energy industry was uh, promoting uh, the amount of employment that would be available, you know, uh, for fracking. Um, and a lot yeah. of people... A lot of people jumped on that bad wagon, but that was a very temporary thing. Once all the groundwork had been laid, everybody was laid off, <laughs> except for a small handful of uh, people. Uh, so people had gone and gotten training. They they you know, they they jumped at this because it offered uh, a better future for themselves, their families, and the communities. Uh, and uh, except for a very few people, everybody was left uh, holding the bag afterwards. And you know so. Uh, the solution was a temporary one instead of a uh, um, permanent one or even a semi-permanent one. And that made folks in the area mistrust uh, these offers from the uh, um, you know, energy companies. They wouldn't go for it after a while because it was like, what's the point? I'll work for like half a year, a year, two years. Then all of a sudden I'll be in exactly the same place where uh, I currently am. Yeah, it's really difficult that way when you have like this great offer, it seems like it's going to fix everything. You know, when you're desperate, you're almost like a drowning man tries to find any piece of driftwood to cling on to, for example, and then you see, oh, wait, this isn't a real solution. You know, fracking, you know, famously uh, tampered and uh, decreased water quality, you know, that there are images of fire coming out of uh, kitchen sinks. Right. You have once the oil's gone, these these positions leave, the jobs leave. You only need a few people then to really really monitor it, and these companies don't really want to spend too much on monitoring, which is why we have, you know, the big Gulf spill in around 2010, and you know, famously in the 80s, Exxon Valdez. I have, I subscribe to many government uh, uh, lists, you know, and uh, I've been very surprised by the uh, energy uh, lately, especially considering what we learn about on the news. Uh, they've been sending environmentally friendly uh, emails uh, for quite a while. And one of the last ones I got was uh, uh, positions for people who care about our planet. I don't remember if that was the exact uh, title, but it was something like that. 
uh, and I was very surprised uh, to see that, but I, I will be sharing uh, uh, information like that. Um, and again, I wish I knew more about energy because uh, it, it brought back uh, memories of Pennsylvania and all the opportunities that would uh, be in the area and enrich the area by fracking. So uh, I was very suspicious of, of some of these opportunities. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, I'd say for these, like, um, opportunities working in fossil fuel, then you're saying? No, they were for environmental. Or, it was, uh, like, earth scientists and uh, chemists, and uh, uh, it, it was scientific type of positions. Um, and, uh, uh, again, I, I don't know what to believe anymore because we've become so polarized that depending on who you're listening to, um, you know, anything could really be going on. So uh, I'm approaching it with uh, caution. Uh, but sub since I'm involved in several you know endeavors, uh, hither and yon, uh, eventually I'm gonna you know have to find a way of like judging the information that I'm getting and then you know sharing it uh, to people who are looking for opportunities. Um, you know, but I don't want to lead them down a false uh, path. So I'll, I, how about this? I'll copy the email. I'll send it to you. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, you when you hear like positions like climate scientists, that does sound pretty above board. There, you know, scientists is a well-respected position. Say it's right. fairly well, variously immune to the nature of the gig economy for now. For now. Um, we're running out of time until uh, your guest arrives. Um, is there anything else? Uh, I guess uh, introduce your guest and talk about the, the, the organizing that you're doing uh, with uh, uh, New Labor. Um, and this way folks can have a background. And uh, um, that's, that's another awesome thing that the uh, AWA is doing. So New Labor is a really interesting uh, organization based uh, around uh, here in uh, New Brunswick, uh, New Jersey. They've been organizing since the 1990s, focusing on uh, blue-collar workers, especially of uh, Hispanic origin, working in the numerous warehouses in uh, the area, since there are so many goods coming off the ships in the Port, uh, Port Elizabeth, uh, Port of New York, New Jersey, and they come, they sit in the warehouses for quite some time, so a lot of the people doing that loading and unloading of the trucks are Hispanic workers, and a lot of those workers are temp workers who are treated pretty poorly. So New Labor has been looking into organizing them, and they've made some gains, for example, in the time they've organized. Uh, they've um, made uh, great strides in you know, popularizing this information and you know, building an organization not only in New Brunswick, but also in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and in uh, Ocean County as well, where they have an office. And uh, it's coming up upon uh, the anniversary of the uh, OSHA Act, Office of uh, Safety and Hazardous uh, Material. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> not sure what the A stands for, but something like that. Uh, so the anniversary of that, protecting workers um, in the workplace, um, dealing with safety hazards is coming up. So this Sunday, April 28th, they're having uh, their annual march in uh, New Brunswick. And, you know, it's a great opportunity then to um, talk to people to understand the issues that they're fighting for and to understand that for some people, you know, these are real issues to deal with that, you know, they're talking, like they report famously when a few people 
you know, God forbid, you know, get injured at work or in the last few years, you know, every once in a while, somebody does die at the work site, and it's really tragic that way. You know, they yes, were it there. Is. For example, a few months ago, uh, I'm not sure, about the last six months or so, when it was reported that there was some sort of, like, noxious smell or gas in an Amazon warehouse uh, in Mercer County. So that was, like, a really big, you know, example of, like, why you need worker safety laws and why you need to enforce these things and make people aware of them. Very good point. Uh, Yeah. No, go ahead. So through the work that New Labor does, you know, on worker safety and part of the uh, campaign for 15, you know, I've gotten to know them, uh, and they're great people. I'm looking forward to listening to that uh, segment. We're going to take a brief music break. And since we're talking about the uh, environment, uh, I found a song called Sequoia Master. Uh, The Sequoia being the giant trees of California. So uh, we'll play that. And then we'll be back with the new segment, Common Bonds, with the host, Dan Uloa, and guest, Louis Kimmel. Hey.
to the Elysium Project. Today is an options and opportunities show, and uh, we are speaking with Dan Uloa of the AWA. Uh, there's been a scheduling glitch. I greatly apologize for that. Uh, and instead of doing common bonds, we're going to do meet the AWA. And today we have Vern Whitlock, who's been a guest on the show before. And uh, both Dan and I will be uh, speaking with uh, Vern and looking uh, uh, at what is new and exciting in his uh, particular corner of the world of the American Workforce uh, Association. Welcome, Vern. It's so great to talk to you again. It was it's nice to talk to you again, Hercules. Okay. Last time uh, we connected was at the event at the uh, Cresco Public Library for the Career Center. And uh, yeah. I'm sure a lot has been going on uh, since then. Um, so I guess I'll pass the ball to your court. Uh, give us an update. Yeah, yeah uh, update. Um, it, it hasn't been that active after the Creskill, but it's been way before Creskill. Um, I actually talked okay. to my major first, first major conversation I had with somebody outside the AWA was I didn't get her name, but she was a nurse at Rarenton Bay Medical Center, Oldbridge. She was explaining okay. to me about um, the uh, how management runs in Hackensack Meridian. The, uh, the gist I got off of her, she didn't give that much information, but uh, they said they're, uh, the, I think either the second or third floor, wherever inpatients are, are more, it's overstaffed and undercrowded. It's uh Overcrowded, understaffed. Okay. And uh, she was saying how the management cares more about um, a score that they get than the nurses and the care themselves. I have noticed uh, uh, personally when I've been uh, in uh, um, hospitals and other uh, care institutions uh, lately, um, the the care seems uh, of high quality. Um, but uh, staff is not uh, as visible uh, as it once uh, was when I visited these uh, institutions. Uh, so I, I can see what you're saying. And you're saying that yeah. they're focusing yeah. more on the evaluation than on uh, the quality of the, the life of the workers. Yeah. And um, there was, I was actually in a car accident. That's why I was there. Um, okay. So, but they they had um, a men, uh, person with a mental disability um, in the isolation room. I understand if the person was violent or something, but um, right. But that that it felt like even the person had like mental issues. It felt like she wasn't getting the best quality of care that she can. She was even um, saying they transferred over over her to Perth Amboy, Rarington Bay. And because they were actually overcrowded up on, I guess, wherever their psych ward is in the hospital, they were overcrowded. Uh-huh. So she, uh, she was being transferred over to Perth uh, Amboy, and they told her that. I felt so bad for this woman. She was saying, I have no money to get home from Perth Amboy. I have no money to get home from Perth Amboy. Because she knew she would have to get home from Perth Amboy somehow. So, and, and yeah, of course, really... I, I, could see, I could see in the nurse's eyes that they want to do something, but they know the administration won't let them do something about it. What, what, what yeah, so it's really difficult now, actually. What? 
Yeah, what would the recourse be? What what could they do about it? Uh, back in the day when I worked in hospitals, uh, uh, a lot of times like the patient advocate could be called, and I've served in that capacity in the past. So uh, well, I know that they, from that standpoint, there's well, a lot I, that I can was, be done. I was, I was going to suggest to the nurse, I was going to suggest to the nurse that can can you give her some sort of transportation? Mm-hmm. But um, but they didn't. At that time, I was more cared about my headache than uh, than um, like trying to conversate with the nurses. But um, they did not offer any any uh, transportation, any patient advocacy. They locked her in the room, and they were just walking around taking care of other stuff. Hmm. That's that's very unfortunate. Um, and. Does this happen a lot? Do people get transferred to other facilities if uh, um, it would affect the uh, overall evaluation that uh, the institution is getting as opposed to providing care? I I was never in the medical field, but I could tell you if I was a patient like that, they wouldn't get their good score. And then what the nurse said, they will suffer from a poor score. So that's that's where I believe... Work, work, the workforce comes in. If if you're not giving the patients the proper care, right? Uh, the nurses are not, and, and nurses are receiving a bad score. Nurses are not going to put up with that. They're going to come in, but they're going to do the bare minimum. Yes. Because if administration won't let them do anything for a patient, why work there? They're just showing up to be paid, pretty much. Yes, I, I, I remember uh, we had an incident uh, in New Jersey uh, where uh, a family member was getting uh, treatment and uh, they decided to discharge uh, the family member. And uh, I had concerns about, uh, you know, some test results and what discharge meant. And instead of uh, uh, discussing the concerns, I was told that they would uh, bring her outside and put her on the curb. <laughs> so, of course, I wasn't yeah. going to let that yeah. happen. Uh, uh, my, my own, my own personal, yeah, my own personal experience. God bless my grandfather. Uh, he had Alzheimer's, so we put him into a home care, like a nursing home. Right. Um, uh, to respect my grandmother's wishes, there were the one ex-nurse did come and talk to her. There was complaints um, of nursing home abuse, mm. and. And it, it, was, it was terrible, but they, it was like uh, stuff that they could could have prevented, but they didn't. So I believe, yes, it's a score, but I believe it's like the understaffed and underpaid, and nurses don't get treated that well, and they say, okay, hell with the patients, pretty much. And these nurses are not being represented by uh, any organizations as in days gone by. Not that I know of. And I did. I did talk to one of the nurses about the AWA. She actually had a smile on their face, uh, thinking a, a, a group is going to support them. Okay, great. So, what would the AWA be able to do for health workers who find themselves in this uh, position, where you know they seek a profession uh, to help people and to also uh, build a, a quality life for their family, uh, and now they're finding that. Uh, um, you know, basically they're being overworked and uh, they're not being able to uh, deliver on the quality of uh, care. Um, 
if, if somebody if, care, if, go ahead. In a in a perfect world, Hercules. In the perfect world, I can imagine us, AWA, the Nurses Association that I met over in Trenton one time with Dan and Sidey, and administration could sit down like across the table from each other, and the nurses could just uh, sit down and say, hey, we had this one patient with a mental history. She has no money to get from Perth Amboy. Can we provide patient care by transportation? Can we do better home uh, room checks in nursing homes? Can you actually put down the um, the score the score sheet and actually look at the patient themselves, not just the score number? Hmm. So that's that's my thinking. Can we just have administration sit down, like do some meditation with them, and have them look into the patient's eyes and see what they need? There are in some hospitals I know in New Jersey because uh, we have uh, folks who you know work in these hospitals. Uh, uh, one of whom has is a host uh, uh, like Dan is on one of the segments, uh, and her hospital has a wellness. Uh, in it, you know, as a component, and it's more uh, non-traditional and alternative type of medicine, but that's become a component of what they do. Uh, there have been losses in employment, um, you know, in uh, these places as well. Um, but uh, you know, they do uh, they do take care of the things that uh, you mentioned weren't being taken care of in the hospital that uh, you had visited. Yes. Uh, the the my the hospital that I love is St. Peter's. They do good okay. care. Yes, it, it is in, in it, it is in a city, and it and they do have their like city, like most city hospitals as you probably know are compact with like gunshots and stuff. Um, but they do take good care. The nurses over in St. Peter's run around, but get the best care. Okay. So um, on on the top of the hospitals, if we just could sit down with administration on like hospitals like Raritan Bay and other hospitals, and actually sit down with the administration and say, here is the problem, can you actually just put down the score sheet for something and try try different things? Um, okay, so. It sounds like there is a plan. Um, how would we apply that plan? Like, how would we? Uh, um, so Hercules, I think Lewis actually. Hercules, I think Lewis actually might be able to get on now. Oh, hold on. Um, okay. Discuss, uh, his issues. But okay. you know, in general, you know, we have, um, yeah, like health issues are really bad, and there are a lot of there are unions that have organized some part of healthcare for example, and they are really, like, working on having, like, safe ratios in terms of nurses and medical uh, medics to patients, and that's a major issue, which actually I think is why uh, the uh, nurses were in Trenton when we met them, that they were lobbying for that. It's been a big issue uh, that a few of the uh, unions have been fighting for, and but it's still difficult because, you know, you have, like, these workers are disorganized, for example, they are, you know, anxious sometimes to not lose their jobs, but they really need the money. And you have the hospitals are just so greed-minded nowadays, especially when, you know, some laws, you know, enable them to grow larger and larger. You know, the idea of profit seems more interesting, especially, you know, when we have an aging population. 
One, it means they can make more money, but it also means we do need more nurses, more doctors, more nursing assistants to take care of the elderly population. Okay, I, I knew a woman. Mm-hmm. I knew I knew a woman. Uh, she was I was like twelve, thirteen. Uh, she had cancer. And she even even though the uh, American Cancer Society is a nonprofit, she asked them for help. And she she was on like a very low income, and they they pretty much said in a short term, like I'm just gonna uh, shorten it for you. Uh, if you don't have the money, honey, we're not gonna give you any help. Isn't that illegal? That's what, <laughs> I don't know because she, they, what they're doing is what she said they're doing is just the research part of it, like trying to tackle the cancer cancer cells. They, she she couldn't give like a donation. She needed help. She she passed away of cancer, um, but she was trying to reach out to these organizations, and they said if you're not going to give you a good donation, we're not going to help. Okay, well, to be continued. Uh, Vern, okay. thank you for coming on, uh, and uh, we will uh, conclude this conversation uh, very very uh, soon. And uh, thank you. Welcome. Do you want a quote or before I leave? Sure, I would love a quote. Uh, it comes um, actually comes from Machiavelli. It's my ver- imitation. You know the one uh, to be. It's better to be feared than to be loved. I actually yes. like this one. I I twist it around a little bit. It's better to be respected than to be feared or to be. <laughs> that is nice. awesome. Thank you for that, and that's an yes. awesome place. Uh, Uh, to end that uh, segment. Um, We will be in touch uh, very soon because I want to learn more about uh, this uh, circumstance because I've spent over 13 years of my life working in hospitals. Um, Yeah. It was just just the thing. I just try to grab as much information as I could as when I was a patient in that hospital. So I got as much as I could. I'm glad that you did. And thanks again, Vern. All right. Thank you. And we're gonna, bye bye. We're gonna welcome uh, our next uh, guest. Greetings and welcome to the Elysium Project. Hello. Hi. Hey, Lewis. How are you? All right. How's it going? Good. Good. Good to have you on here. You know, we're happy you know to be uh, talking with you for New Labor. You know, since you have the uh, march on Sunday. So, can you tell us a little about how you got uh, involved? in labor issues? Sure. So, uh, I mean, basically coming out of college, uh, I uh, ended up doing some work for what was to become New Labor, kind of working undercover through temp agencies to see what people wanted in the effort to try and start a new organization for people that didn't have one, uh, which were at the moment Latino immigrant workers uh, working as Temps, right, through temp agencies on French Street, Livingston Avenue in New Brunswick, and this was in 1999-2000. So back then, uh, I was working through the temp agencies and getting sent out to different jobs, and then by talking with people to see what they wanted and meeting people where they're at, we started an organization around English as a second language. So I didn't really have much experience in anything, uh, organizing labor rights nor ESL, but that's how we started because that's what people wanted. So we built a class out of that. Uh, learner-centered using small group activity method and the rest is history right from there we invited maybe 30 people and only one showed up 
Uh, but little by little, more people came uh, through word of mouth. And then when people were in that setting, uh, creating like a second home or second family, people also realized that, you know, they had other issues in common besides wanting to learn English to get ahead, but also had some of the same bad landlords and the same bad uh, employment situations. So, you know, over time, collectively, we've come to, you know, try and fight against that in a collective way. Oh, that's great. Could you tell us a little bit about the uh, temp agency industry there and what you found that people were dealing with? Sure. Uh, I mean, at any given point, there's about 10 to 15 different temp agencies in New Brunswick. They're mostly uh, geared towards light industrial, uh, light manufacturing type jobs uh, for the most part in terms of where they send people out to. In New Jersey, it's kind of a temp town racialized market where it ends up being geared towards Latinos. There are certain ones that kind of geared towards uh, more African-American or first-generation immigrant. So New Brunswick, for the most part, is geared towards Latino immigrant worker when it comes to uh, sending out people to uh, to, to client firms. And, you know, it's a lot of, uh, could be anywhere from large multinational corporations that are hiring out third-party logistics groups uh, and in the end, hiring out temp agencies to man those uh, facilities to actually do the work, or it could actually be a local mom and pop type establishment as well, like mixed import export. Uh, so it kind of runs the gambit, but I think that that is a little bit of a snapshot of the local market. Okay, and you know, I guess you guys have been organizing for quite some time now, say '99. Then have you been able to make some progress then against these agencies? Yeah, although it's uh, it's hard uh, because you know, when it comes to a traditional organizing approach, it's next to impossible when unions have been based around traditional, uh, you know, just one industry or one shop, and agencies are sending out to multiple shops. And the other issue that happens, agencies, once they have issues, they kind of uh, form a new enterprise, a new entity with the same people, different name, slightly different location uh, to kind of absolve themselves of previous sins. So like those are some of the issues and we might be able to make change in one place one at a time, but it's kind of hard to do that piecemeal. So we have to look at things holistically, you know, be it through uh, statewide legislation, local legislation as one way, but also thinking about, you know, corporate conduct and corporate responsibility when it comes to supply chains, uh, because it is again, in the end, it's large multinational corporations or other Warehouses that are also imposing conditions on agencies. Yeah, it's interesting then to think about it how you, know, you see like one problem somewhere, you know, at a warehouse, you know, here in Central Jersey, and then like it's just like part of like this larger chain, then, for example, as it works its way up, and how you're really fighting these like large corporations. And but that's pretty devious, though, that, that they're almost out, they're, they're just closing down one business and just operating another pretty much the same. Right. So like in one particular case, uh, it used to be, I guess, Infinity Staffing Solutions is now uh, Liner Staffing. And if you look at their logos, they're pretty much the same colors and they've got flipped around and their offices were both located in Lawrence or Lawrenceville, I think. Um, So, I mean, that's part of the game. So tell us about like uh, the way that you guys have organized then, if you're saying that, you know, some unions 
I've had trouble with this, then has New Labour been able to do some things in an interesting fashion then? Uh, so, uh, the it's work Right. So, I mean, so New Labour is not just a temp worker organization. That's how we started. However, being that people want to learn English regardless of their sector and people move in and out of temp work, you know, we became a worker center that kind of caters to low-wage immigrant workers. Uh, so we look at it, everything as a community issue and a community approach uh, to things. So we get other people involved that aren't necessarily temp workers, and there's also obviously fear of retaliation, so it's easier to get other people sometimes from the outside to support. Uh, working with the union, sometimes it's been more of a challenge if uh, they see temp work as competition. So there is not always an immediate incentive to try and think strategically or innovatively about getting temp workers to be part of the same fight. Yeah, it's difficult when you have a lot of employers in a community that isn't exactly terribly established, for example. It's difficult when you have people that can't speak the same language as, you know, the majority population as the bosses. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great that you guys are doing classes. Yep. So, uh, what are some of the issues then that, you know, workers face in these uh, temp agency jobs? Right. So there's many issues that, that workers face uh, through temp agencies. Some are particular to agencies, but others are kind of uh, they epitomize all low-wage work, right? So lack of respect, unsafe working conditions, wage theft. Uh, in the case of temp agencies here in New Jersey, there's unsafe, unreliable van transportation that people are sometimes forced to take, even though that's against the law to do so. There might be more than 15 people in a 15-passenger van where people use milk crates or riding on top of uh, tire covers or, or things like that within within the van. Uh, there's gender discrimination, age discrimination, sexual orientation discrimination. Um, you know, previously we had to fight back against advertisements of jobs for men and jobs for women. Uh, so, you know, going agency by agency, we got them all to take those signs down. Uh, so it's just kind of scratching the surface, but that's you know some of what we've done to fight that. There's also issues of favoritism, oh, okay. right? Nationalities played against each other. Uh, but that's part of the divide and conquer strategies. Oh really? Oh, it's pretty devious that way to say what? Say like one nationality is part of is lower that they only hire Mexicans versus Guatemalans, something of that nature. <laughs> It, it comes down to sometimes the supervisor or whoever's at the agency. Again, some specialize. There might be one that kind of looks for, uh, you know, patient workers, for example. Um, so it, it ends up being sometimes that one group's played against another or they feel that they're played against each other. Uh, so that makes it a little hard to organize, obviously. And tell us about your working wage stuff then. It's a big issue, I know. Right. So uh, we can be firefighters, which we end up doing uh, as one case after another, but that means that sometimes you'll put it out and sometimes you won't. Uh, you know, the laws aren't really in favor of workers to recover wages. 
uh, when it comes through going through a long process with the Department of Labor where you can file a complaint and go to a hearing months later and have a judge decide in your favor but still not get paid in the end. So, uh, you know, we've done large complaints with the DOL and recovered hundreds of thousands of dollars through that and a million dollars over our, you know, existence of new labor. Uh, we also help spawn local waste ordinances to create a lever for municipalities to um, revoke licenses or suspend licenses in the event that businesses haven't paid up uh, an outstanding wage theft judgment against them. So we've, to make that work, you need a group on the ground like us. So in New Brunswick, you know, us, Unity Square, some other groups have helped make it work to recover tens of thousands of dollars um, for workers by using that as leverage when it came time for those restaurants to renew their licenses. Right? And there's one case with Unity Square where a restaurant was actually shut down for a little bit until they paid uh, what they owed to their worker. Oh, that's great then. That sounds like a really effective strategy then if you're able to have like a friendly city government that can help with that. Right. I mean, it helps to have someone, I guess, in government that uh, knows what the law is and how to enforce it. I mean, that's basically their role. They're not going to be picking sides here, uh, but their their role is to enforce the law. And is if someone, as, as long as that process is known, and that person is proactively doing that, that's favorable. Uh, it's not as favorable if there's a bureaucracy and people are not aware of what their roles are and responsibilities are. In terms of people being the workers, then? No, on the government side, in terms of enforcing the law, uh, there's been cases, at least for us, with some of the earned paid sick time ordinances before that became state law, where uh, it didn't seem that people in city government necessarily knew what their role was or how to handle complaints. Oh, really? Oh, that's not good. Have you guys yeah. tried to strengthen the law then on the state level? For for which? For what? For wage theft? Right. There is, uh, there is currently a, a bill that, into law but hasn't quite made it there yet. Um, it's just kind of lagging behind in the assembly, uh, but it would create, you know, up to 200% liquidated damages that workers would be able to recover, extend the statute of limitations uh, for up to six years, uh, and it would also create potential um, to, for support for organizations that are involved with community outreach, right? Um, so it also creates a potential disorderly offense uh, for some of the uh, the employers that are found guilty of not paying their workers. Uh, but this hasn't become law yet. So, I mean, that's the dream. It's been something we've been trying to get for a while now. Um, it's kind of being held up on the idea of a quote-unquote uh, innocent mistake. Uh, however, that kind of neglects to... It kind of neglects the fact that, uh, you know, honest employers that are making quote-unquote innocent mistake, right, once they are, if that's brought to their attention, they rectify the problem, they fix it. Uh, and there's a whole process before it even gets to having an employer be found guilty, right, where it's brought to their attention, right, either by a worker or by the Department of Labor, 
they have chance to prove you know that they paid or they haven't you know to be able to pay right and if not they can go to a hearing and they have a chance to present their side of the story and they have a chance for the judge to decide in their favor and in the event that the judge does not decide in their favor they still have 45 days to pay right so there's a whole process before an employer has to uh, would have to be found guilty of, of non-payment they have lots of opportunities to make it right well that's good and at least there's opportunities then if it's an actual honest mistake Versus the the idea that they're claiming it could be an honest mistake that paperwork was somehow lost or somebody should sleep at the job, which is just like a really funny idea that they're claiming this, you know, in like this age, you know, and I'm sure they really don't want to pay that money, even though the workers really deserve it. Right. Yeah. Waste theft is uh, billions stolen annually, right? Uh, So that's money not only for the workers, but that affects uh, local and state economy, right? So people aren't paid, they're not buying clothes in the local store, they're not going to the local restaurant, health stressors, psychological stressors, right, on them, on their kids, right, seeing what their parents are going through. So it's a community issue, right? It's not just one person who didn't get paid. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great point there, actually. When you think about it, like all the effects, of somebody not getting paid and, you know, like the economics then that are subsequently at stake, you know, when people are struggling that way. And that's crazy that it would be billions of dollars that are being withheld illegally than from these workers. Right, right. It's non-payment of wages, underpayment of wages, being paid less than minimum, not paying overtime and time and a half for, for workers that are hourly, uh, plus lots of other excuses saying they didn't like the way uh, the worker did the work. Um, right. Any any kind of excuse that can be made up gets made up. Yeah, right. it really is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, it's really a shame then in that respect because you have like a lot of these workers, I'm sure, like blue-collar guys and really need that money then. Again, it's not just there, uh, their issue, mm-hmm. it's the it's a community issue, so everyone's losing, right? No one the only one that wins there is the unscrupulous employer, right? And they're just winning illegally. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately that way. If it's billions, like what industries then is this like really bad in? Because it can't just be everything. Or it could be, but probably some that are worse than others. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it runs the gambit. It's not just uh, low wages or white collar jobs where you know people aren't paid. There's also misclassification. So someone might be, you know, classified as independent contractor, and they're not getting paid. What they should be paid is is a regular worker. Uh, there's also prevailing wage jobs where you know a worker might be making forty to fifty dollars an hour based on the prevailing wage, but they're only getting paid twenty, right? Uh, with the employer pocketing the other half of it. Uh, so it's not just uh, a low-wage issue, uh, although I guess I mean restaurant and construction seem to be pretty prevalent. Uh, sometimes it's part of a business model, right? It, for a restaurant to pay a weekly wage of four hundred, fifty, five hundred dollars a week, for example, where 
they will always pay on time. Uh, the weekly wage, however, that might be 60-something, 70-something hours where it works out to less than uh, minimum wage and overtime. That's insane, then, that you would have such low wages. Then when you think about, like, all those hours that add up, then especially when you are in, like, the rush hour of, like, a busy restaurant, I can't imagine it's not as, like, easy then in some jobs where you're sort of, like, sitting at a counter as, like, a security guard or a lot of the other types of white-collar jobs which aren't so strenuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, not much time to always make a complaint, right? People are always working, might be working from one job to the next. Uh, so sometimes it's a little difficult to take action based on that. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, when people are working for low wages, they're not being paid enough, they still need the money, that the rent is still due on the first, that utilities are still due, and that there's always emergencies that come up, health emergencies, cars. Cars are a big thing. I'm <laughs> learning that the hard way just recently. Yes. Mm-hmm. So... You know, actually, now that, you know, it's um, the anniversary then of the uh, OSHA Act, could you tell us about that then? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, the OSHA Act or OSHA itself, the Occupational Safety Health Administration, was actually uh, a long fighting effort uh, to get it created in the first place. And it actually comes out of uh, the labor movement spearheaded by Tony Mizaki. Uh, and it's always been a way to organize the workplace, right? It, you know, health and safety in the workplace is a fundamental human right, and it's something that we can have control over, uh, especially when we come together to form committees, for example, to make sure we have what's needed for safe and healthful workplace. So, and you mentioned the anniversary. So OSHA uh, was formed under uh, Richard Nixon, so lots of things under Richard Nixon, like EPA, too. Uh, that are being decimated little by little. Uh, so OSHA itself is very small and, and compared to EPA. Its, its budget is really small. Uh, and based on the amount of inspectors, inspectors they have, it would take them over 100 years to visit every worksite in the U.S. at least once. So they're very stretched thin, and there's always a push to cut their funding, right? reduce that funding, reduce the number of inspectors, uh, which has actually happened under Trump. So it makes it you know, few and far between for them to get to these dangerous work sites to do inspections. So then it comes on to groups like us and workers to uh, be the eyes and ears of the workplace and enforce uh, standards for workplace health and safety. Yeah, I imagine that's one of the things that you know Republicans don't really like. That the idea that you have to pay people to inspect these workforces, these workplaces, to make sure that there's no no monkey business going on. It's especially the thing that they would love to cut, saying that it's so oppressive that way to businesses and the government that have to regulate it. That these people are being oppressed, which is really funny because then you have like all these workers and that are in these conditions, places that are dangerous. I imagine sometimes if it is light industrial. Right. So when a worker gets injured, is actually 
not good for the company or for worker dies not company either when it comes to their worker comp rate. So it is in their best interest economically uh, to be training the workforce and to make sure they're working safe and uh, you know workforce is cared for. They are more productive. So you know there's all kinds of studies you can find them. Uh, you know one was done by the former head of OSHA, David Michaels, and they point out the, the you know the benefit, the cost-benefit analysis that there's lots of benefit as opposed to cost when it comes to creating health and safety programs. Right? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of employers in the low-wage uh, industry area do not provide any training, so it's incumbent on groups like us to go out and do that, even though it's the employer's responsibility based on law to provide that or find someone that can provide uh, basic training even for for workers. So we've done training thousands of uh, workers in workplace health and safety uh, over the years. And, and there's a number that has said they haven't had any training, even though they've been working for 20 to 30 years, for example. Really? That's, uh, that's pretty uh, crazy to be there in the industry for 20 years and not know, like, things that are pretty basic than I imagine in terms of, like, keeping safe. In terms of what eyeglasses or gloves or right, there's a uh, personal protective equipment. Um, and those are some of the basics uh, in terms of reacting or uh, to an issue as opposed to trying to get rid of it at its root. When I'm looking at it in terms of a hierarchy of controls uh, for for health and safety. Um, so the training, if there is any training, a lot of the times might just be. Uh, verbal it might be from supervisor, it might be from a coworker. This is what we do, and this is what you need, as opposed to being uh, a more in-depth training uh, or something that's a little bit more site-specific. So, could you tell us about the trainings that you guys have done? Sure, we've done uh, you know through grants and outside of grants a variety of workplace health and safety trainings uh, in English and Spanish um, around different topics such as slip ships, falls, uh, ergonomics, OSHA rights, chemical safety, uh, falls in construction, electrical hazards, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, uh, trench safety. Uh, so, so a lot of different activities uh, again, using small group activity method and geared towards workers in different low-wage industries, be it you know, late industrial warehousing, temp work, and construction, restaurant work, even landscaping. So kind of you know, pretty much any low-wage industry uh, work. We've developed different activities or modules that can be done uh, in English or Spanish. And the ones oh, that train are, are trained, our members that we've trained uh, using smoke group activity method, um, studies show adults learn best from their peers. Oh, okay, so is that what the small group method is then? Yep, small group activity okay. method. What, what does that entail then? Like just like a few, like a small class then or people participating? Uh, so people work in groups to try and solve real-life-based tasks or based situations that have happened or could happen in the workplace. So using their own experience as a group, technical fact sheets that they read, uh, they're trying to solve that problem, right? And in the end, each group reports out 
how they solve that problem, which are the fact sheets that are supporting how they're solving that problem. Uh, and then the facilitator draws it all together to make sure all the important points have been hit using summary points uh, for the activity. So, you know, I mean, working in a team builds that skill. And reporting out is speaking in public. Uh, it's critical thinking when it comes to figuring out how we go about solving a situation that doesn't always have a straightforward answer. So um, that's kind of how a small group activity method has worked. Uh, you know, it's something that came out of uh, some of the unions in England and was used by uh, a lot of the uh, unions like uh, what used to be OCAW here in the U.S. Oh, that's fascinating, actually. I'll have to look into that more just as a sort of organizer myself that way that that's really like the most effective method. Almost like a certain sort of like class then in the traditional K-12 sense, I suppose. I think it reminds me of a few group projects back in the day. And so it's outside of, uh, well, I guess primary school education, high school education. It's, uh, you know, it's for adult learners. So, uh, again, adults learn differently than kids do. Uh, so there's different learning exchanges from worker to worker, worker to trainer, and trainer to worker. So it's not just like a one direction flow of information from teacher to student, right? That happens, but there's also student to teacher and student to student, or in our case, as everyone's a worker, it's worker to worker. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, uh, well, it's always interesting then to learn things like that. It makes sense then that like an adult would learn a different way than a kid. You know, an adult ideally has their critical thinking skills and can engage in a dialogue in that fashion, in that way. So tell us about the upcoming March then. Sure. So every year uh, we hold an annual March for Workers Memorial Day with the New Jersey Work Environment Council, uh, NJWEC. And Worker Memorial Day is April 28th every year. And this year we're doing it actually on April 28th, which is this Sunday. Uh, it's a day to remember people that died in the workplace or got injured. Uh, every day there's 12 people that go to work and don't come home uh, in this country. So there's over 5,000 die every year on the job. And there's hundreds of thousands more that get injured or die due to diseases that they've suffered right, uh, in the workplace. So we need to keep fighting for safe workplaces for all, right? So our rallying cry is not one more death, right? In Spanish, ni una muerte mas. So we hold this rally. Uh, Sunday will be this Sunday, April 28th at 1 p.m. at 222 Livingston Avenue in New Brunswick which is Ansha Emmett Memorial Temple. Uh, so we get, we usually have a couple hundred folks come out. We hear testimonies uh, from workers that have been injured or family that have lost loved ones uh, to injuries on the job, uh, as well as hear uh, updates from uh, someone from OSHA about workplace fatalities. There were 28 people who died in New Jersey last year. Uh, Although there's other workers that were from New Jersey but actually died in New York, for example, that are not on that list. Um, and then hear testimonies from some other leaders of other organizations, unions. Uh, and then we do a march. We march through the city to make it public. Again, going back to the issue of wage theft, it's an idea that it's not something that's just one person or, or you know, one family that's affected. This affects everyone. Uh, when some, again, when someone's injured, 
they're not just you know they can't contribute to the local economy the, the way they could before right uh and it becomes burdensome right for them if someone has to take care of them uh so we're here to remember people to die to get into the workplace and keep up the fight for safe workplaces for all right uh it's also uh a way to remind people that climate change is real right climate justice is worker justice uh, our members, which are mostly low-wage Latino immigrant workers, so they're going to be the ones on the front lines when it comes to uh, fighting back or trying to do recovery efforts after uh, extreme weather events, right? Um, also, people that are going to school, students, teachers in these learning environments that are too hot uh, because of climate change. We, we need AC, we need air conditioning, we need temperature control. There's also a push for that. Uh, as well around creating legislation and making sure there is enough funding for air conditioning in school. Uh, so that's what this is about. We hope to see everyone out there uh, this Sunday, April 28th. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. You know, last year, uh, um, AWA went and we had a good time. Great amount of people, great energy with everyone there. You know, even though it is like a dark thing that you're dealing with, you know, there is like a great like hopefulness of it then the power of community that way. Right. And actually, the the logo uh, that was done for this year is a fist with a flower uh, coming out of it. Uh, and in that sense, there is, you know, life coming out of death and, you know, can, uh, can mourn the dead and pray for them. We need to fight like hell for the living, right? So, uh, people are going to keep dying unless we do something. It's unacceptable that people keep dying in the workplace. Right? Um, there is uh, this last week. Kenneth Mann ja- died in Jackson. He was crushed to death by equipment. Right? That fell on him. And two weeks ago, Jorge Velasquez uh, was run over by a landscaping truck on the job right here in New Jersey. And three weeks ago, there were uh, three people that died in New York City in construction accidents in the same week. So this is completely unacceptable. Um, if you see what companies are getting fined for these uh, these workplace deaths, it's it's, it's some, some it's like $7,500. So that's what it says our lives are worth, right? If someone dies and we say our, our lives don't have a price, but that's what the price is. Yeah, it's pretty uh, messed up. Uh, to say the least, uh, there, the one in so low, uh, which is why they should probably be uh, publicly shamed more so it can hit uh, their uh, bottom line if they're publicly traded, especially so. 5,000 workers in America every year die at work. That's insane thinking about it then. There's so many. Yeah, that's 5,000 too many. Right? It should be zero. So we're going to yeah, keep doing it every year until it's zero. Yeah, that would be the idea. Yeah, I imagine, you know, it's like, you know, when you have, like, the blue-collar, like, head of the family or even, like, the son who's bringing in, like, extra money for things, you know, that can hurt, like, a family, like, really bad then, you know, when the breadwinner is taken away or anyone who brings home any money taken away, it's got to be, like, a great loss to some of these families. Yeah, all these deaths are preventable. So through systems of safety approaches, they can all be prevented. So no one needed to die in vain. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. That way, to say that, like, some of these things, I imagine, you know, if they had been trained or if it, 
had taken like just a couple minutes more, you know, I imagine a lot of these deaths are pretty preventable then. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's beyond just training uh, or the time that those are part of the systems. It comes back to employer responsibility. They're ultimately on the line. Uh, so, you know, why wasn't the training given? Why wasn't there supervision when it needed to be done? Right? Why weren't the checklists checked? Uh, why was uh, the potential hazard not engineered out so that it would not be a hazard in the first place? So, like, those are all the questions that we need to be asking. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really, like, really important, especially when you have, you know, like, the worst thing, you know, that happens, the death, that mm-hmm. could be prevented if these companies were taking better care of themselves, taking better care of their workers then. Can you tell us about any other uh, of new labor's like long-term goals? So long-term, I mean, we do have other centers in Lakewood and Newark. Uh, We hope to be doing some work around domestic work and the Bill of Rights for domestic workers. Uh, There's a federal push, and we'll see about doing something in state in conjunction with the other workers there, Uh, other worker centers as well that have domestic worker bases. Um, I mean, what we are looking for is that workers have, you know, control over their workplaces, and regardless of who they are or where they're from, that's that's what we're fighting for. Yeah, that would be the ideal then, you know, workers' control of the means of production, <laughs> to use certain terminology that way, but that's interesting then, the idea of domestic workers, because, you know, you don't think of that really you know, in the same line as, you know, construction workers or a waiter, for example. But, you know, I suppose, you know, it is like an interesting issue that is getting more and more attention now. Yeah, it's uh, a largely invisible workforce, but uh, isolated workforce, but uh, they're there. And there's National Best Worker Alliance that helps uh, highlight some of their issues, uh, Roma, as a movie features some of the issues faced by domestic workers. So uh, it's definitely more out there also as the population ages. Um, caregiving industry picks up, and a lot of times that's individual. So that's one of the next frontiers as well. Well, yeah, certainly. That, yeah, we were just mentioning that before you came on about the nature of you know, the aging population and the fact that that brings on know the need to bring on more workers who you know need to be treated with dignity given proper wages but it's great you know when you have a movie like Roma then that comes out and you know really highlights the issue you know front and center that way I imagine you guys like uh, were really happy about that then yeah through the domestic worker alliance we were able to host a screening in Newark um, community screening and so we and the other affiliates of NDWA filled up a theater there with like a hundred something people uh, to watch that on the big screen, which is way better than seeing it on a computer or, or small screen TV. Um, so hopefully we can do another event like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it helps to have people see that. You know, it helps to have representation. You know, it's, uh, it's one of the few movies to have a you know, main character as uh, a person of with indigenous roots, right? 
Yeah, that's true because I'm, <laughs> I remember I was trying to read the subtitles and, you know, being a decent Spanish speaker, at one point she's doing her indigenous language and I'm like, what? What does that mean in Spanish? But, yeah, it's really great that way, the way that this actress, Yulitsia, was able to pre- pre- <clears throat> portray Cleo. It's like this really, you know, empathetic character, full character, for example. Right. The nature of, like, how she's, like, kind of, like, in a weird position as an indigenous worker in this middle-class, upper-class family in Mexico City where she's not really from, just with, like, her friend who's another worker, that she's very isolated. But, you know, I guess she's in a decent situation there. The family does seem to really appreciate her, that, like, it's, like, the really heartbreak, the heartbreaking touching scene at the end when they're like, oh, we, we love you, Cleo, we love you, for example. And I imagine a lot of domestic workers don't face that, that they don't feel that type of affection mm-hmm. for the family that deals with, I imagine. It's a mixed relationship, mixed feeling. So there are obviously good employment relationships where people are part of the family and they, they generally, generally feel that. Um, there's some that are not, right, where might be seen as the other or you know less than uh, equal right uh, a lot of times it's in between right and if there's an issue that it's hard because people have blurred lines where there's uh, in true relationships of friendship or, or love they get intertwined with uh, the employer employee relationship and it's hard to disengage from that uh, we've had a case where a worker was owed money, but she was reluctant to confront the employer because uh, of her relationship with uh, the employer's kids, for example. So it makes it it's hard to break down all the different uh, relationships at play. Oh, yeah, that's really different then if you're in that type of like very intimate situation, especially with like kids, you know, and you're there even more isolated than the temp worker, or, or at least there, you know, it's a pretty black and white situation you're the employee you know i see you for a few hours and then go away i don't really like you or ha ha have a good weekend type thing you know it's a little more nuanced than domestic worker mm-hmm. right so. so some are some are live in some come and go uh so that also creates you know it's also a different dynamic for for people yeah, it's going to be really difficult then if you're trying to confront somebody and then, like, it kind of depends on your living situation there that you might even be afraid of being put on the streets that way. Right, right. That's right. That's also no different than other uh, workplaces in terms of fear, right, of losing a job, right, or being fired. So that's always a plan. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, these uh, issues, you know, it's great, you know, as they become uh, more in the light as, you know, movies like Rome will come out, for example, where people start to understand these issues better and better, for example, that, you know, you're able to make progress slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. So, wow, I'm, I'm very dealing sad. with these issues. 
I'm very sad that our journey is uh, soon coming to a close. Uh, this was a very fascinating uh, segment, and I learned a great deal. Thank you very much, uh, Lewis, for being a guest. And uh, congratulations, uh, Dan, you survived your trial by fire <laughs> with an excellent uh, segment. And um, so, um, Lewis, uh, I'm sure uh, that uh, Dan would agree that we'd love to have you back on again. And uh, I okay. personally okay. would like to do something, uh, even if it's just spreading awareness, uh, about the fact that so many people die uh, trying to feed their families. And I agree that that, that should not happen uh, at all. Um, so uh, um, if we stay in touch, I'll make sure to spread the awareness through uh, social media and uh, my other uh, platforms. Sure. Absolutely. The most important thing is just to make sure everyone comes out this Sunday on the 28th, uh, 1 p.m., rain or shine, 222 Livingston Avenue for the Worker Memorial Day March and Rally. That is awesome. And how can people learn more about uh, new labor in the interim? Okay. Okay. Easiest thing online, newlabor.org, newlabor.org. We're also on Facebook at uh, newlabornj and Twitter at newlabor. Hey, thank you very much. And again, thank you, Dan. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, the next show. Oh, you're very welcome, Hercules. Thank you. Sure. Well, Bye-bye. We're going to take a quick break and listen to uh, the Dragon Ritual drummer Shango, and then uh, we'll be back for the concluding segment of Options and Opportunities, the Elysium Project. Shango.
that was a very rousing and uh, interesting song. And uh, now we will listen to Goddess of Wisdom by Lori Lynn.
Welcome back to the Elysium Project. I'm Hercules Invictus, and you've been listening to Options and Opportunities, our vocationally focused uh, show. And uh, tonight, most of the show was uh, focused on the American Workforce Association, founded and headed by Dan Uloa. Uh, here in this last uh, segment, I'll be giving an update on our career center at the Crestfield Public Library. Uh, we'll be having our second monthly special, the third Thursday in May, which would make that May uh, 16th, um, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. And uh, we will have speakers and we will have... Uh, uh, an author who wrote a book on procrastination, uh, and we will have an employer who will be recruiting actual employees at our event. And I will be relaunching Destiny Quest. Destiny Quest is a um, workshop that I've held in New York, New Jersey, and in Pennsylvania over the past uh, couple of decades. And it is focused on finding out what your optimal work, your life work, your passion and your purpose uh, would be. And uh, our dreams, as you know, are important. They guide us toward a better tomorrow, yet it's what we do now in the present moment that determines if our dreams will ever come true. Your listening to this show, which is vocationally focused, means that you are motivated to move forward in life and are determined to create a better future for yourself and your loved ones. I salute you, and I'm glad that you're here. And now, let us begin this new adventure. Uh, as we spoke of earlier, what we do for a living helps define our place in the greater human community. The quest for one's purpose, one's calling, one's true vocation is often a lifelong pursuit. Each job, each volunteer experience, each action we take towards self-improvement and skill acquisition is a step forward in this never-ending journey of self-discovery and self-expression. Though it may often feel like you're alone during times of uncertainty and transition, it is important to realize that, in truth, you are not. We are all on this quest together, whether we're self-employed, working full-time, part-time, or not at all. Perhaps we can assist each other on this life-changing adventure. You're hereby invited to follow our podcasts, which uh, you are doing, and by utilizing the resources that we're developing at the Creskill Public Library. Uh, my current destiny quest, for instance, is to better align myself with opportunities uh, that will help me further establish myself in the context of my current community uh, and to grow my mythic actions and my mythic activities um, beyond my current uh, vision. Uh, aside uh, from what uh, I'm sharing here, uh, I'm developing a website that will further support my quest. So please feel free to uh, explore. It's my personal belief that our greatest assets arise from our greatness and that is our responsibility to claim our own personal power and to express our uniqueness by finding and cultivating our unique gifts and dedicating them to the betterment of our world. Um, I wish you all joyous journeys and even greater success on uh, your adventures, and hopefully we can uh, add to and enhance 
uh, what you yourself are doing for yourself. Now, those of you who know me know that everything I do is mythically inspired. And my mythic inspiration for Destiny Quest is the choice of Hercules, a tale that was preserved by Xenophon in Book 2 of his memorabilia of Socrates, which you can read uh, online for free. Uh, It greatly inspired the early Stoics, and it serves as one of my life's guiding myths. In summary, before the Theban Hercules started his mythic career, he took some time to contemplate his future course of action. While he thought things through, he was approached by two imposing female personages, Areti and Kakia. Kakia promised him an easy path, filled with life's greatest distractions, but devoid of all sense of personal responsibility or social conscience. Areti promised a path full of uncertainty and hardship. She offered him a difficult future that fully embraced personal and social responsibility and demanded unceasing action, even when no reward was promised and no relief was in sight. Though no doubt tempted by Kakia, Hercules knew that life's greatest attainments were reached by discovering, cultivating, and sharing one's unique gifts toward the betterment of all. He embraced his best destiny and freely chose the path of Areti. His many adventures immortalized him in human memory and earned him a place on Mount Olympus. Though Areti and Kakia are usually translated as virtue and vice, Areti actually means personal excellence. And when Kakia tempted Hercules, um, she actually tried selling him the option of reaping unearned benefits through the exploitation of others. Though the choice of Hercules is told as a one-time event in Hercules' eventful life, in truth, we are always at a crossroad and always confronted with key choices that determine our destiny. In honor of Thebes' greatest hero, I resolve to choose my future courses of action as wisely as my deepest insights and highest perspectives allowed. I would forever strive for personal excellence by discovering, cultivating, and sharing my own unique gifts toward the betterment of all. And now you know what motivates my quest. Once again, this is Hercules Invictus. I'm very grateful that you are here with me tonight. uh, And I look forward to connecting with you all again uh, very soon. For listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.